We're in the book of Colossians, and Paul is writing this letter to a church that he's never met. He's received a good report from the pastor, a man named Epaphras, who has told Paul that the church is known for its faith in the Lord Christ and the love they have for the people of God. He has said with great clarity that they are known as a church that is filled with the spirit of love. And so Paul breaks out in this glorious exhortation regarding the wonder and goodness of Christ as he prays for them. And he rejoices in this very good report. And so while the rejoicing in the goodness of the Lord, in the wonder of Christ, in the mystery of the gospel that has now been revealed in the person of Christ, as they think about and glory in the sufficiency of the cross of Jesus, Paul says, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. And then he turns to them and he says, just think of who you once were. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled. He has now, but now he's reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. And he says, in, in, in that we rejoice, and in that we have hope. We're saved by faith alone, a faith that is deep and rich and strong. We confessed in this worship service here. Recently, we, just a few minutes ago, we read something from some, uh, something called the Heidelberg Catechism, question 60. And in part it says this, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. I don't want to ever lose that. I don't want to ever cloud that under, that, 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 that I and you, if you're a Christ follower, I am holy, righteous, and above reproach in Christ. Not because of what I have done, but because of who Christ is in me. And, and, and in that we rejoice and it gives us great hope and joy and it makes us sing and dance and be very glad. So, so, so faith alone saves us. But then Paul says this in verse 23. It's, it's, it's an observable faith. It's not a secret faith. It's observable. He, he says, you belong to Christ. And then he says this. This is that conditional statement, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not moved from the hope of the gospel that you heard about, which has been proclaimed in all creation, under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He says, you're, you're holy, blameless, and above reproach. If you continue 
in your faith. Now, the faith is observable. It's real. It's something that can be seen. It's not, it's not a secret faith. or it, 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 It's there. And, and so he says, not shifting from the hope. The hope is the expectation of future joy and thankfulness for present-day mercies. Hope is a key theme in this book. For example, he says in verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, hope of the future, expectation of future glory and goodness and thankfulness for present day mercies. Chapter 3, verse 4. doesn't use the word hope, but it talks about what the hope is. He says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then he says later in this chapter that you're to treat people with dignity no matter what your station is in life, especially if you are an employer or in this case a, a, a man who runs an estate. He says, says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In other words, that's the hope. that there, There's a glorious day coming in heaven, and it is filled with hope and joy and anticipation. Chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt. Why? Because we're proclaiming the gospel to people. And the gospel is the gospel of hope. Hope comes on the basis of the reality of Christ in our life. Hope is heightened when we realize that from which we have been spared. Listen to verse 5 of chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And again, chapter 3, verse 25, he says this, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. So part of hope is understanding that from which we've been spared. Hope comes in the wake of faith. It's the anticipation of future glory and the enjoyment of the present-day realities with thanksgiving. Hope. So many of us remember this date. It was uh, December the 21st. 1988. Seven o'clock in the evening in Lockerbie, Spain. Pan Am flight 103. I had left London, was going to New York. 259 people on board. The, the flight was a few minutes late, and so they were going over the last part of Scotland, and air traffic controller was giving them clearance, and as he looked at the screen, the plane exploded at 31,000 feet. The debris from the plane covered, went over over 845 square miles. It's amazing to me. 
The bulk of the plane made a direct hit in a small village called Lockerbie, Scotland. Killed 11 people. It wiped out one whole family. Miraculously, only 11 people. Uh, one family had two boys that were out riding their bicycle, and the mother and the father and the 10-year-old daughter perished. It destroyed 21 homes. It left a crater 155 feet wide that looked like an atomic bomb had been dropped. Let me just read from a, a statement from a Scott newspaper. It says, One minute after the explosion, a large section of the plane's body containing the wings and 200,000 pounds of aviation fuel plowed into a Lockerbie Street, traveling at more than 500 miles per hour. It directly hit the house at 13 Sherwood Crescent with a deafening roar, and the impact registered a 1.6 on the Richter scale, and a massive crater 125 feet long was gouged in the ground where houses once had stood. The aviation fuel exploded when the plane hit the ground, sending what residents described as an atomic mushroom through the houses in the Crescent. Many homes along with the people inside were vaporized, 21 homes. 11 residents were killed. Of course, this was carried out by some terrorists from, from, from Libya. Mass destruction. Fire from heaven. Many of us are here today remember an event in September of 1989 called Hurricane Hugo. And we remember the mass destruction that was in the wake of Hugo. Many of us remember four years later Hurricane Andrew hit southern Florida, and, and the people of the low country had been so blessed by the response of other people when our hurricane hit that we took up a spontaneous love offering on one Sunday. I think we gathered $20,000 in one spontaneous love offering, and we sent three truckloads of people with supplies to, to, to South Florida to, to, to haul wood and to just be with people and do what little we could do. And, and when we got there, the, the mass destruction was unbelievable. You see, Hope is heightened by the realization of what we will be spared. In Revel this is going to be this is a hard sermon. I'll just say that this is this is a tough message, but I want you to really hear it. In Revelation chapter six, there is a, a statement made about. Let me just read verses twelve to seventeen. And when he opened the sixth seal, judgment. I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it's shaken by a windstorm. The sky vanished like a scroll that was being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, everyone, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath, the judgment of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand it? There's a book written several years ago entitled The, the Other Side of the Good News. It's a good book. And the writer said in The Other Side of the Good News that we have to realize that for those people who are outside of Christ and who willfully reject the gospel, there is judgment awaiting. And every natural disaster and everything is a foretaste of this incredible event. 
And so I, I, I read the Bible, and I say, Lord, fill, us, fill me with sobriety and earnestness and forgive my lack of tears and my lack of earnestness. Just forgive me. And, and I, I, I read this passage, and I think about men and women who merely profess Christ but they're not continuing on, and, and they're involved in misbehavior. And, 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 and it's easier to say, well, these things happen. But really, the, the way you show the world that you're a believer in Jesus is by your obedience. Now, you're saved by faith. But it's not a faith that lives alone by itself. It produces fruit. So uh, this is a, a very important understanding. So I, I want you to hear me this morning. This is a difficult message. But it's so important. And so because of the reality of Christ and because of the certainty of heaven and the certainty of hell, we, we have missions. We have strategies to reach neighborhoods. We have campus ministries. Not to make people necessarily feel good, that's part of it, but to communicate to them the timeless gospel of Christ that men and women outside of Christ, when they die, go to hell and judgment. And that's why Paul says in verse 29, for to this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I toil, I struggle, I labor. There's an earnestness, there's an outpouring. So, so hear this. Well, last week we dealt with, I set the table, and I, I said, I want to say very strongly, you and I are never done with sin. And we were in Romans 7 where Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I said, that's the cry of a believer in my opinion. There are times I cry that out, wretched man that I am. God, this attitude, this compulsion, this lack of remorse, this lack of love. God, God do something in me because I'm not the man I should be. One of the humbling things about, about growing old is I really thought when I was 20, 25 and 30 that by this age I would be much more godly than I am. I did. So I'm never done with sin. And then I gave you three points last week. Let me just reveal them very quickly. Uh, men and women can more and more weaken the desires of the flesh or more and more strengthen the things of Christ in their heart. By being strengthened by the Word and by the Holy Spirit. We need to be together. We need to study the Bible. We need worship. We need prayer. Because if we do that, the indwelling sin, this in every one of our, is more and more weakened, and the grace of Christ is more and more strengthened. I'm just going through the points. So, and then, what I just said, we are involved in a continuous and irreconcilable warfare in our bodies. We're never done with sin. Uh, and then this. There's often the confessions of faith that, that, that sin may prevail for a season, but ultimately the grace of the Holy Spirit will overcome. Christ guards us. Christians may fall into sin, but they do not stay there. Let me read First John verse 19 it says this they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued 
with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. Very clear verse in a very difficult book. They left and they didn't stay with us because they really never were believers. So I need a continuous supply of the Holy Spirit. So here's the banner statement from last week. I'm going to say it again. I, I am in an ongoing battle with sin, but the Holy Spirit compels me to obedience. Compels me. God strengthens us by the channels of grace, the means of grace where he pours the Holy Spirit into our life. And we said last week that that's prayer and Bible study and worship and fellowship with the saints and, and, and just being with God's people and, and walking in obedience. And, 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 and so let me just make a, an appeal or, or a plea that one of the means of grace is being involved Vitally involved in a local church with brothers and sisters who pray for you and know you. And that's why we have community groups. You need to be in a community group. And, and we, we believe that being part of a church requires and demands, and it's a joy to have spiritual oversight. So if you're not in a community group or a known group, then our elders are going to uh, just pray for you, and they're going to have small teams of people they pray for, and they'll call occasionally and say, how's it going? How can I serve you? Because we want people to be cared for and served and loved. And if you're not a member of a local church, join a local church where Christ is preached, where salvation by faith is proclaimed, and where the Bible is supreme, and people want to make a difference for the Lord. Just get involved. If it's not this church, go to another good, godly church. Because if you're not a member, there's, there's this hesitation. I, I am part of this body. This is who I walk with them. I struggle with them. I, I argue with them. I repent with them. I confess with them. This is my family. And if you're here and there and here, get in a family. For those of you who don't like football, football is almost over. So you can be glad for these illustrations. But today we have the AFC and NFC Championship. And one of the games involves the Pittsburgh Cedars. And I thought about this earlier this week. I thought, you know, I have never been to Pittsburgh. I have known a ton of people from Pittsburgh. It's amazing how many people from Pittsburgh moved to Charleston. You see, but, but I, listen, I've met people from Pittsburgh who are, they're, they're just not sports people. Unless you're talking about the Steelers. They love the Pittsburgh Steelers. And there's a man sitting here, he's a, he's a friend, he's an orchestra, he's, he's a professor. And I didn't realize this, but he told me, you know, there's three colors on the Pittsburgh helmet. Uh, I think it's red, blue, and yellow. He, he told me that was a Trinitarian symbol, and I didn't know that. <laughs> he told me that. I didn't believe him for a minute. <laughs> I'm not that gullible. But, but I mean, I, seriously, I've never met some, If you ever meet somebody from Pittsburgh, they... what. Wave the terrible towel. I guess it's in the water. I don't know. But that's refreshing to me. I want to be part of something. The wonderful and the glorious means of grace. So as we look at this issue, we're going to cover this issue in about 15 minutes or so. When you meet someone who professes faith in Christ... And yet they're in a sinful condition of which they're not repenting and they show no remorse. You avoid two extremes. One is to say, I know he or she is a Christian. 
because I was with them at the Camp's Crusade rally or the youth camp where they prayed to receive Christ. Because you don't know their heart. You don't know their heart. The other seems to say, I know that he's not a Christian. You know what? You don't know his heart. A Christian can be in sin and fall into sin, but they do not stay there. And if you're a professing believer this morning and you're walking in known sin, you should be miserable. That's a good sign. So um, let's, let's deal with this issue and walk through it. Again, it's all about, as I deal with sin, we all deal with sin, it's about the, traje- the trajectory of my heart. Do, do I want to be pleasing unto the Lord? See, if I'm a believer, I get up off the mat, I repent of my sin, and I run to Christ. I, I'm bruised, I'm bleeding, but I'm going for Christ. So, very quickly. There's a man who died in 1609 whose name was Jacobus Arminius. And Arminius was a well-known Bible teacher, and he, he rebelled against some of the teaching of his day, and he came out with some statements. And one of his statements is this, is that a believer can, can lose his salvation. A, a, someone who's genuinely saved and is in Christ can fall away from faith. And, and, and all the people that were around that day, the vast, vast majority said, no, no, that's, that's not correct. Said so if someone is, they quoted John chapter 10 that you know very well that, that if you're in the Father's hand, no one can take you from the Father's hand because the Father's more powerful than all. Or they would quote 1 Peter chapter 1, we receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. So, so they said, we think you're wrong. And they said, no, no, the believers can go into a season of, 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 dis- of, of disobedience, but, but they don't stay there like what I've been saying. So that's Jacob Arminius very quickly. John Wesley believed that, and John Wesley, I think, was very wrong. He was a wonderful, godly man, but he was wrong about that. So so that's one place. Now here's the second, act two. Within those who believe in the perseverance of the saints, okay, that's the term. The saints will persevere. In fact, the, the Baptist faith and message says this. That's our confessional statement. We, we will never fall away from the state of grace, but shall persevere to the end. See that? Persevere to the end. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. They persevere to the end. So, so this is seen too. Within this particular camp that believes in the perseverance of the saints or eternal security, uh, there are some that... I think have taught very erroneously, and it's a great sorrow to my heart. I've got two quotes in the bulletin. One is from a man named R.T. Kendall, who took over the pulpit of Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel from Kentucky, went to London, was a pastor. And this is what he says. He wrote a wonderful book on the power of the Holy Spirit and on, on confessing your sins. But this book, was, I had some major issues with it. But R.T. Kendall contends that anyone who believes in the gospel will go to heaven when he dies, no matter uh, what work or lack of work may accompany such faith, close quote. I'm going to say to you, I don't think it's biblical. I I think he's wrong. I think it leads to lax behavior and a lack of passion for people over whom we should be weeping. Now, the next quote is from somebody that I really respect, but I think he's wrong. And so... Charles Stanley is a wonderful man. 
I have a deep regard for Charles Stanley. He's been a man of great courage. But in this area, I think he's just wrong. And I'll quote from him. This comes from his book, Eternal Security. He says, the Bible clearly teaches that God's love for his people is of such magnitude that even those who walk away from the faith have not the slightest chance of slipping from his hand. Okay. Been this and this. Even if a believer, for all practical purposes, becomes an unbeliever, his salvation is never in jeopardy. Now, I agree with part of that statement, but to, to, to me, it's just, it's just the last part is just wrong. Because the, I mean, the Bible teaches that by their fruit you shall know them. Jesus taught had a parable in Matthew chapter 13. It's called the parable of the tares. And it goes like this. And because of time, let me just briefly give you a synopsis. Jesus says that the, 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 the Lord planted good wheat, but in the night the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. And so when the wheat and the tares started growing together, the angels or whatever came to him and said, Lord, you want us to pull the tares out with the wheat? And Christ says, no, let it stay. They'll be separated on the day of judgment. And many people throughout church history, the vast majority said that teaches, that's, that's teaching, that, that in an assembly of people, there will always be people who profess faith that really, whose hearts aren't really there. It's called temporary faith. That's what it's always been interpreted. And, and, and then you go to, let me just read two other passages. Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, hear the words of Christ. Verse 21 says this. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and his father, father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the other. Then he says this. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, or the prince of demons, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, so, so to me, with startling clarity, Christ says, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And then the passage, I always say this is the scariest passage in the whole Bible to me. Matthew 7, 21. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's pretty clear. And then he gives the commentary, which is scary. Our Savior says, on that day, many, not a few, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not preach in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And Christ says, and I will then declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you workers of lawlessness, or you're you disobedient. So I, I step back from there and I go, you know, people preached in his name, people cast out demons in his name, people did many powerful things in his name. And Christ says, I'll tell them very plainly, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness, or, or you disobedient ones. So that's why I go back to Colossians, and I say, why verse 23 in the midst of this grand celebratory passage? Because Paul knew the parable of the tares. Paul knew that Satan was always at work. Why verse 23? Because down the corridors of history, there would be a country called Germany that was largely committed to something called Lutheranism, and they would replace Lutheranism by and large and the cross with a swastika in Nazi Germany. But there would be some pastors like Dietrich Bonhoeffer who would write a scathing book called The Cost of Discipleship, and one chapter is entitled Easy Believism, which isn't really faith. So, I want you to rejoice in your salvation and be very glad. And when it comes to this very difficult issue, I want you to understand that, that by their works you shall know them, by the, by the fruit of their obedience. It's not how loudly I profess, but it's how I live out my life. So, so Hebrews 6 is a very difficult passage. So I'm going to skip the difficult part and just go to the, the part of the application. So listen to verses 9 through 12. The writer of Hebrews says, though we speak in this way, I've got people that have left the faith or turned away from the faith or whatever. Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. He says, for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He says, we think better things about you because you love the saints, and we don't want you to be sluggish, but we want you to imitate people who press into the kingdom. And so I say that, I say that to myself. I say that to you. So, so three application statements, very quickly. Number one, read Colossians 1. Rejoice that you're holy, blameless, and above reproach if you're in Christ. Rejoice that even though we still struggle with sin, the perfect work and standard of Christ is now ours. Be glad in that. And, 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 and when you fall and when you're knocked to the bat or when you scrape your knee or bloody your nose, thanks be to God that by the Holy Spirit we get up off the mat and we go forward to Christ. It's the trajectory of our heart. We all deal with sin. But it's the trajectory of our heart. Now, number two, don't forget to plead. Don't forget tears. Don't forget to plead with professing Christians who are in known and unrepentant sin and to say to them what Philippians 2 says the church of Philippi work out your salvation with fear and trembling don't come to them in arrogance and pride and say I know you're not a Christian you don't know their heart but don't ignore them in their sin and say I know they are because you don't know their heart and there are people in our family 
There are people in our neighborhoods. There, there, we have parents and children who have professed faith in Christ, but now they just shrug their shoulders. Listen, if you're shrugging your shoulders over the glory and goodness of Christ, be afraid. Be afraid. Number three, plead. Be heartbroken over people around you who are not believers. Understand that people without Christ spend eternity in hell. The wrath of God, the Bible says, will be revealed. It will be a cataclysmic day like Lockerbie on a scale that we cannot imagine, where the powerful and the rich and the successful and the arrogant and the slave and the poor will cry out, mountains fall upon us and hide us from the wrath of the face of the Lamb of God. It's amazing. God forgive me for my lack of tears. So if you can get up today, get up tomorrow and you stand up and you say this, our Father who art in heaven, Abba Father. By the cross of Jesus, Abba Father. Hallowed be your name. You get the glory, Lord, today. You, you, it's all about you. It's not about me. Hallowed be your name. I give you my titles. I give you my honors. I give you my academic degrees. I give you my business. I give you my family. Hallowed be. You get the glory, Lord. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So rule me by your word and by your Holy Spirit that I more and more die to sin and more and more live to you. And, and, and Christ is supreme in my life until he is my all in all. If you can say that, rejoice in your salvation. Be very glad. Go out singing. Go out loving, go out pleading, go out weeping, go out in obedience. Oh, that we would be this type of people to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, are amazed at the goodness of Christ. And we, like the church of Colossae, when we were hostile in our minds and doing evil deeds, um, you made us alive in Christ. It's not because of something we deserved. It's not because of our heritage. It's not because of our ethnicity. You looked and you claimed a vast people to be your own. And Lord, we thank you that we're saved by faith, but faith produces fruit. And so we want to be fruit-bearing Christians. Lord, I pray you would forgive us for our lack of tears. I pray you forgive us for at times not talking to people because it's just uncomfortable. And it causes us to be um, put on the spot. And it causes us to be called narrow-minded or judgmental or holy rollers or Bible thumpers or whatever the word. Those, those, those are pretty light terms. Uh, I just thank you, Lord Christ, you said that, that, that the servant is not above his master and the student is not above his teacher. And if they called you the prince of demons, what are they going to call people like me, like us? 
So tell us, show us to, to count the cost and to walk in joy. Show us what it means to get up and to pray, Abba, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and to live that way. So work in us, I pray, Lord. We pray for those that we know and love who have been exposed to the gospel, but it didn't seem to take. We don't know their hearts, but let us plead with them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.